This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 37 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and like always, I'm joined by another awesome guest. She is an iOS and Android developer at Bucket and Beck and a regular conference speaker as well. It's Ellen Shapiro. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Hello. Thanks, John. Uh, nice to be here. And and thank you for your uh, Scandinavian pronunciation of the name of my employer. Uh, I know a lot of people have a lot of a lot of trouble with a smush together AE, but uh, that was uh, spot on. <laughs> yeah, I've had some practice. You know, when people say like, it's like a second language to me. Uh, Norwegian is like literally a second language to me because it's like 90% Swedish. So very, very similar. Yeah, depending on who you ask, uh, it, it they might say it's uh, Swedish is 90% Norwegian. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's how it goes. So I'm very happy that we could make this happen because I think we started talking about you coming onto the show about one year ago. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, great that we could finally find a time for it. Uh, but I know that you've had quite a busy year, right? Yeah. I So when we started talking last year, I was beginning work writing. Uh, so I wrote a few chapters of a book called Kotlin Apprentice. Uh, for uh, raywenderlich.com, which I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about later. We will, yeah. Uh, yeah, writing a book, it turns out, is really hard. And uh, I am... Uh, not good at self-editing. And so uh, it took me about five months to write those five chapters. And I'll grant you one of them was like wound up being like 8,000 words long. But <laughs> it was still... Uh, it was still an awful lot of work and it really kind of destroyed me from a schedule standpoint. And then, uh, once I finally finished that, then I went straight into conference season again and I was just like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely relate. It's funny how conferences really have seasons, right? You have like the spring season and the fall season because in the middle of winter, there's nothing. And then in the middle of summer, well, there's nothing as well because most people are like on holiday and things like that. So it's interesting how like most conferences happen in like September and October. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, there was a huge pileup of them in Europe this year uh, in September and October. I think I did three or four conferences in those two months. And then I know Paul Hudson did something like 10. Yeah. I was like, Paul, you're <laughs> like, if I'm telling you, you're doing too many conferences, you are doing too many conferences. Like, what are you doing? Um, but, you know, it's interesting because it's difficult to have any conferences right around WWDC. Although actually this year I didn't go to WWDC because I was in Warsaw at uh, Mobile Central Europe. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it is something where, there are definitely times where it's easier to sort of get people out on a business trip, particularly if they have a family, like you're not going to get people away from their family during the summer. Right. Um, you know, and it's, it's often it can be really difficult to travel during the winter just because like weather. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I lived in Chicago for a really long time. So I am extremely familiar with uh, weather based uh, flight delays. And, uh, you know, it can be really, really hard to get, get anywhere. So I, I totally understand why some of these conferences tend to pile up around the same time. But at the same time, if you are, uh, if you're, if you're lucky enough to, uh, be a speaker, then it can sometimes be a little bit of a crunch because just you have three or four of them right in a row. And particularly if you have a day job. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's, that's really difficult for me is that I, uh, am always, wildly over optimistic about how long things are going to take. 
I think there's a common thing among developers. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're all god awful estimators. Because we're so excited, right? Like, we can't wait to get started on something. And we're thinking, you know, you can kind of envision the end result, right? You can see the path there. And you're thinking, okay, optimal path, you know, path find my way through that work. <laughs> and that's going to be like two weeks. And then it turns out to be like 10 weeks. Yeah. And I think it's also something where, like, um, when I am estimating things, I'm like, okay, well, like, this is the worst thing that I can see from this high up. But when I actually get into, like, building something, I'm like, oh, there were a whole bunch of details that I did not see when I was that high up. Right. And that's where the, that's where the, the dragons live. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think I, I, I also get this thing where I'm very bad about trying to fill my time. Um, so if, if something, uh, takes less time or actually takes the amount of time it's supposed to, I'm like, oh, now I have this extra time. And it's not like, hey, what happens if you get the flu? <laughs> and, you know, so you got, you got, you got to be careful about that stuff. It's filling up the schedule. Yeah. I've been trying, been trying to be a little bit better about that. I, I burnt out a little bit, uh, after, after the spring and tried to, tried to take some time off over the summer. So been, been back in the saddle this fall and it's been good. So yeah, I mean, it's a lot of fun to speak at conferences. And like you mentioned, it's a very fortunate position to be in to be able to go to so many events and to travel and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but it is really tiring. Like, uh, definitely, it's a lot of work to prepare a good talk. And especially if you want to deliver this talk in a good way, you need to rehearse a lot. So uh, I mean, I usually rehearse my talks, I don't know, like five, 10, 15 times sometimes. And and, you know, just do the math. That takes a long time just to do that. And then you have to prepare to talk, travel, all those all those things. So, yeah, it's definitely kind of, you know, a career in of its own to kind of be this like regular conference speaker. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is something where, you know, uh, it was interesting. There was a bit of a, a thing on Twitter uh, a few days ago where I guess uh, somebody was at a conference and like a bunch of the speakers were like, oh, I just slapped this together at the last minute. And there was sort of, there was sort of a bunch of back and forth about like, uh, you know, speakers shouldn't do that or speakers should always do that, uh, because then their content is always fresh. And it's, I, I think the thing that I've seen doing this for the last, what, four or five years now, um, is that, different people have different techniques. Yeah. But I think it's also something where it's like, you don't need to let the audience in on the secret of what is your actual preparation process because A, that distracts from whatever you're trying to talk, tell them about. And B, you know, it is something where if there's somebody who has a different type of preparation process, like you, you mentioned that you rehearse like 10 or 15 times when you hear somebody say, Oh yeah, I just let this together last week. You're probably like, you jerk. What the hell? <laughs> but it's also something where, uh, there are some people who really, prefer the adrenaline of doing something really fresh, prefer the, um, you know, basically uh, stumbling up to the finish line and then flopping over the finish. And as long as the audience doesn't know that that's what you did, sweet. Yeah. Like, the keep the focus on the actual talk. And I, I, I think that's the thing is that, like, so much of this stuff is so individualized. And it's, it's, it, it is something where, like, people have to allow for different preparation techniques, but just don't like humble brag to the audience about how little time you spent preparing. <laughs> the yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And uh, I think you nailed it with uh, the fact that people have different presentation techniques and different presentation styles and also 
different preferred ways of preparing for a talk because it's so individual and a big part of actually becoming kind of a experienced speaker is finding your own style because a lot of the times you don't know. In the beginning, I had no idea kind of what my style would be. And if you would look at all my talks and kind of watch them, let's say you would binge them. Not that I recommend that, <laughs> but let's say you would. Uh, I think you would see kind of the, a clear kind of evolution throughout the talks where I started out like maybe not super prepared and, and more kind of winging it. But then I found that, you know, I don't make great talks that way. And the way I make great talks is by actually like doing that like really thorough preparation and like know my slides in and out and you know script a bunch of jokes in there and then, you know these kind of things. <laughs> yeah. And it's definitely something where um you know I I one of the reasons that I feel like I was able to sort of hit the ground running is that um I actually started an Android meetup group in Chicago because there was sort of a big Google developer group but there wasn't anything super Android specific. And so I started a small Android meetup. And when you start a meetup, you are always the speaker of the last resort. Uh, and so because we always had tried to have two or three speakers, that meant I wound up speaking a lot. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, there's less pressure on you if you're doing a shorter talk in front of fewer people and it's not being recorded. And you have some more flexibility in terms of like getting your style down, figuring out like, okay, how far in advance do I actually need to start this? Uh, how, how much rehearsal is good and how much is something where I feel like I'm just coming off stiff? Um, how much, and also just sort of like, um, how much of a script do you need? Cause I know that there's tons of advice out there about like, don't script your talks. Cause then you just sound like a, you sound like a robot. You know, I think the best advice that you can probably give someone when they are about to get started with public speaking is to try to do it as many times as possible in kind of a more controlled environment, whether that is like a local meetup or in your own company, or maybe rehearsing at home in front of the mirror. I know it's awkward in the beginning, but you get used to it. <laughs> uh, and that way you can find that style quicker because because I don't think there is a way to say like, you should never do this or you should never do that or you should always do this or always do that because you know, like I mentioned, I script my talks quite heavily and you do the same for, for different reasons. And you know, some people, they don't like that at all. Some people like to have lots of presenter notes. I personally don't have any presenter notes. I just, you know, rehearse the talk so much that I actually remember the script in my head. And yeah, it's, it's, it's all about like finding that style and, you know, I think that's probably like the best advice that anyone can give someone who's getting started with public speaking is just like, try to find that as, as soon as you can. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it's also something where uh, even even great speakers, if you watch them over time, uh, you can see some some changes that they that they put into some of their talks. And it's it's you know, it's not something you know, it's like development uh, in a sense in that, like, there's a lot of stuff that you're just not going to really grasp until you try it and then there's also there's also never a shortage of stuff to learn yeah but when you're not speaking at conferences which is you know arguably a, a big part of both of our of our lives <laughs> i run into you at a lot of conferences yeah we're conference buddies and uh, that's always fun you know when you yes. when you meet someone often like that uh but when you're not at conferences you are working at bucken and beck uh so uh what do you do there and uh, what's it like working at bucken and beck uh, so I do iOS and Android development, um, mostly iOS development. Uh, at this point, we have a we have a pretty big Android team that's uh, uh, got that covered. And every once in a while, uh, I I'm like, hey guys, look, I made a thing, and they're like. 
<laughs> cute. Um, uh, no, they're actually all very, very supportive. And um, I've, uh, you know, I've been working with one of our Android developers on some Kotlin native stuff. And, you know, they've been very supportive of, of uh, some of the stuff that I was doing when I was writing the book. And it's really, it's really fun. Um, and, you know, day to day, I build apps. Um, you know, I think that's like, People, I, I sort of have uh, the stock joke line of, uh, so what do you do? Uh, and I, I tell people, oh, I'm the jerk that makes your phone beep at you in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> That's so a good one. I, I uh, yeah, I work on all kinds of iOS apps. Um, and, you know, working at an agency, you're, you're sort of uh, working for random clients. I did some app work on an app for Coinbase, and I'm also working on... Uh, some stuff for some Norwegian clients that we have. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Agency work is always a lot of fun because you get to work on so many different projects. And, you know, you can also try out different techniques depending on the requirements of the project and moving generally very fast. And yeah, it's 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 fun for, for a while, at least. It's a lot <laughs> of fun to work for, for an agency. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, you know, I started my career at agencies. Um, so I started at a place uh, in the U.S. called The Nerdery. Um, and, uh, that was, that was definitely what it said on the label. It was a, it was a place full of glorious nerds. Uh, and, uh, then I worked at another place in Chicago called Vocal. Uh, and then I actually, uh, worked at one product company, uh, which was called Spot Hero, uh, which was basically something where, like, if you wanted to buy a parking space for, like, a short term, uh, like if you lived in the suburbs and you were going into the city and you wanted to see a show or something, you could purchase your parking space through through our app uh, for for like uh, so that you didn't have to go driving around like trying to find a parking lot that wasn't full. Ooh, that sounds good. You should launch that app in Krakow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, I think the thing is in Europe right now, more and more cities are like, you know what? We don't want to provide parking. We want to get cars out of the city. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when you're not doing agency work, you're also working on an app with a much, much smaller team called Hum. Yes. And this is super interesting because it's uh, kind of an intersection between music and technology, which is another kind of big passion of yours. Yeah, it's been really fun. So I've been working on Hum since 2014, um, or actually since 2013. We launched it in 2014. Um, so Hum is the brainchild of Aaron Shiki. Uh, he is a designer, uh, who is absolutely brilliant, can see design flaws from outer space, which sometimes makes me insane. <laughs> he is a singer and songwriter, and he has a couple of bands in the Minneapolis uh, area in the United States. And he really wanted something that could be sort of a notebook for some of his ideas. Like the idea was sort of having an audio sketchbook. Um, so he could, uh, record, uh, uh, some audio and he could write down some lyrics and he could put down some metadata about the song, like, uh, what key it's in or whether it's a happy song or a sad song. Uh, you know, that kind of, that kind of really basic metadata. And then you could search for that. And I actually was a singer songwriter for a long time, uh, when I was younger. Um, and as soon as I heard, um, Aaron's idea, I was like, this is brilliant. I wish this has existed when I was doing more songwriting. And so I knew I had to be part of it. And, you know, I think it's part of why, I liked the idea of getting into programming in the first place was that you could not only sort of make stuff, but you could make stuff to make other stuff. 
Exactly. Yeah. Building creative products is always so much fun. And once you build these tools and you put them into the hands of other people and you see what they make with them, you kind of, you know, it's satisfying to write the code. It's satisfying to build a product. But once you see what other people can make with your product, then it becomes kind of even more exciting. Yeah. And I I really am proud of the fact that I'm working on something that makes it easier for people to do stuff uh, that's creative. And I think that's, that's, that's a reason that even when I run into things that are really, really frustrating, I still am really excited about working on this app. And, yeah. you know, there's there's always stuff that's super frustrating. Um, right now I'm dealing... So we had initially added um, a way to back up all of your, your hums to Dropbox um, using Dropbox's Sync SDK. But then Dropbox uh, decided to deprecate their V1 API, which is what the Sync SDK was built on. And they were like, yeah, also we're deprecating the sync SDK. So if you want to continue syncing stuff to Dropbox, you get to write your own sync SDK. Hooray. Yay. And, <laughs> um, I'm probably doing it in a phenomenally stupid way. Um, just to be perfectly honest, but it is something where I was at least able to get it reliably working on, uh, the, with the sync SDK. The problem was that um, when I had done that, I had written exactly zero tests for it. Right. And um, so I, I wound up deciding to rewrite everything uh, with some tests. And uh, those tests caught a lot of problems. Unfortunately, they didn't catch all of them. It just is something where like even your best set of, of tests... They, they're never going to catch everything, but boy, it would have been nice if, if, if I had sort of realized what I was getting myself into. Um, by having the tests on, on the older version of it, then I would have realized some of the assumptions that I was making when I was trying to update this to go to, uh, go directly to Dropbox's, uh, upload site. And I would have been able to catch some of these problems a lot easier or a lot earlier rather than spending like the last year fighting with it. <laughs> yeah. And that's a really good point because uh, one really kind of underestimated or undervalued value of testing, I think, is when working with third party dependencies. And when you are making these kind of assumptions, like you mentioned, because a lot of the times we have to use some kind of third party dependency because of I don't know, budget reasons or because a hobby project or because, you know, you were working on an app by yourself, like, or you were the only developer and, you know, you didn't want to write your own sync solution, which is, you know, completely understandable. And, but protecting those implementations with tests is, you know, really great because we know how it works. Like, Dropbox deprecating this API is not an anomaly, right? Like this happens all the time for all kinds of SDKs. You know, they get shut down, they get migrated to new versions and things like that. And having those tests in place can be a really nice kind of insurance policy for when you need to deal with that. I, I think it was one of the first big things that really taught me some of the benefit of having automated tests um, to make sure, you know, Hum in particular, one of the earliest releases that we did, I had forgotten to version the core data model. And so uh, if somebody had the original version of the app uh, in and then they tried to install 1.01, it would crash because uh, the, the core data model version had changed, but I hadn't actually versioned it. Right. And adding the, the tests to make sure that like all of my automatic migrations actually were working 
that was one of the first tests that I really started adding because I was like, oh, yeah, if you can't open the database, this app is pretty useless. So I should probably make sure people can can open the database. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of these things that you write once and then you can just reap the benefits of that forever pretty much, right? Because as you're writing migration on your model, you can just utilize, you know, maybe the same or a highly similar uh, set of tests to actually always verify those things. And again, it's an insurance policy for you as you're making these type of changes. And when you're testing on a device and always doing a clean install you won't notice it but then yep. users will notice in the wild and that was absolutely what happened when i was when i was working on it i was like oh this isn't a problem i'm just I, i'm just going ahead and making these changes and reinstalling and making these changes and reinstalling and it just is like oh right yeah the whole people who are in the world have that installed thing yeah and i think exactly that you know, that's also been something that's been interesting, both working on Hum and then working at Spot Hero in terms of like, oh, yeah, like backwards compatibility. That's a thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's one of those things where um, working on something that's that's longer term, you do have to keep different things in mind. And I think it is something it's it's influenced the way that I write even shorter term things uh, as well, just because there are more things where I'm like, Okay, I know past me is a moron and did this the wrong way. So current me is going to be less of a moron. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely something where, you know, as with anything, the more times that you do stuff, the more you can sort of see, ah, okay, this seemed like a good idea at the time, but this is why maybe that wasn't the best choice in the end. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so as you can tell, this uh, episode is going to be very, very heavily about unit testing or automated testing in general. So we want to talk about unit testing and dive deep into kind of what goes into writing testable code and how we use unit testing on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. We also want to talk about UI testing. And finally, uh, like Ellen mentioned earlier uh, about her recent adventures into Kotlin and Kotlin Native. So we want to talk a bit about that as well. But let's kick things off and talk about unit testing in more detail. So first of all, uh, before we dive in, Ellen, what kind of is unit testing? And can you give a kind of brief overview of what a unit test really is? So unit testing is basically something that says, here is an isolated piece of code. And when I take this isolated piece of code and I give it an input, I get back what I'm expecting. So uh, one thing that I was testing today was a wrapper around a keychain library. And so I said, okay, uh, let's, let's write a test that when nothing has been set up, that there's nothing that's being stored for, for this thing that I'm storing. No? Okay, great. Now let me test that when I put the, the thing in the keychain, I can get it back out. Okay, good. Now, let me test that when I put the thing in the keychain, I get it back out, and then I delete it. Then the next time I try to get it back out, it's not there anymore. And sort of really, really basic stuff that the idea is that you want these tests to be there so that if you need to make changes in the future, you can do them and have some kind of assurance that what you're doing is still working with your existing code. Yeah. Um, so for example, um, that test that I was describing is using an older keychain library because I'm in the middle of updating uh, a fairly old code base. And so one of the things that I'm planning to do is I'm planning to swap that out for something a little bit newer. Uh, and one of the things that that test will help me do is make sure that I'm doing that correctly. So I will be able to say, okay, I added this in this fashion and now I'm getting this back in this other fashion. 
Is that working? And it's kind of like a little bit like the migration tests you were talking about earlier, where you are verifying your implementation now against one implementation or against one dependency. And uh, then you can swap that out and you can run the same test or, you know, you keep running the same test on your code base continuously. And you can verify that the change you've made actually didn't cause any regressions, at least that you know of. And that way you can kind of sleep a little bit sounder at night. You can be more confident and you can also make changes a lot quicker because if you have the right tests set up and you know that those tests are covering most of the logic, then you're going to gain more confidence in making changes more quicker. And I think this is an important point also when we talk about testing where, you know, sometimes uh, it can seem like writing tests is going to take a lot more time and it's going to be a, like a net negative. And it's definitely an upfront investment, but once you've got the tests going, it can really allow you to move really quickly when you want to make these kind of big changes if you have tests that are covering that logic. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think one place that I've seen this to be really beneficial, even in fairly small apps, is that um, if I if I make a decision of like, oh, wait a minute, this was a way I wanted to do it when I thought it was going to do this. But now we've had this complete change of what everything is going to be. I need to like change a whole bunch of different stuff. And uh, having tests there as sort of a safety net makes it way, 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 way faster to refactor because you're able to say, oh, okay, uh, like I have something that assures me that despite the changes that I've made, it's still doing the same thing. Yeah. And it might be doing it, you know, you might have, you, you might have had like a hamster on a treadmill, uh, in the first version. And then you have like this <laughs> insane Rube Goldberg machine in the second version. But as long as the, the input and the output are the same, then, you know, your whatever is depending on it is still going to be able to make the assumption that it works. And that makes it way, way simpler to make changes. Yeah, absolutely. I always wind up sort of coming into the middle of projects. Like, even though I work at agencies, I actually don't get to do a like file new project all that often. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's something where when you come into to something, particularly if it either has no tests or really terrible tests or tests that just haven't been run in two years, um, you know, you you sort of have this giant blob of code that you're not really 100% sure how to work with. And, you know, if it's something where uh, it's got good separation of concerns, there's some places you can start to see where you can do stuff. Um, and you can say, okay, like I can at least validate that when I call this uh, this API call that it that if I give it good credentials, it'll return success. And if I give it bad credentials, it'll return failure. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, that's where you can at least start. I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of people is just finding those places where you can start to pry it apart and actually test little pieces of it. And that's, that's sort of, I think to me, that's the biggest advantage of tests and having tests is that they do sort of force you to think through like, okay, is this an isolated piece of logic? Is this doing one thing and doing it well? Or is it trying to do like a whole bunch of different stuff and I'm trying to do too many things in one place? And that's something where you basically can use testing as a way to, to determine, oh, am I actually separating these concerns or are they just all mushed together in a giant pile? Um, and I think that's something where... Um, you know, like I said, there are some code bases where you come in and everything is fairly decently separated. You can start writing tests immediately. 
There are some code bases where you come in and it just is, you know, massive view controller festival and, <laughs> you know, uh, app delegate that's like 9,000 lines long and all that kind of stuff. And you just kind of, you know, other than wanting to like back away slowly and set your computer on fire, you go, all right, how do I deal with this? And I think this is a situation that many people find themselves in where, you know, you want to start testing, but it's really hard to know where to start. Like you're looking at these massive classes and you're thinking, well, this is pretty far from a pure function, right? This is pretty far from just having input and output. So when you start working with a code base that looks like that, or, you know, maybe something in the middle where it doesn't have like 9,000 line app delegate, but it has not the most perfect separation of concerns and it doesn't really, you know, have an architecture that is set up for testability. Uh, what are some of the things that you keep in mind and how do you usually kind of refactor that to, to support testing? So I think one of the first things that, that I do is sort of take some time to sit down and look at the code base and sort of figure out, okay, are there places where there are, I think, I think the like technical name for it is like a seam, but it's basically some place where you can sort of say, ah, okay, here is a place where there's known input and known output. And I can sort of say, okay, this is, this is a place where I can write a test. And then maybe once I've written that test, then I can break it into smaller pieces and maybe write tests for those smaller pieces. But often, uh, you know, if you're not running into the situation where people are just doing networking straight at the view controller, I think at this point, most people have figured out that that's a bad idea. Um, but it's, it's something where, um, if there's some kind of place where it's like, okay, maybe it's like going out and doing the networking and the parsing and the saving the core data, you know, you can at least test that that whole thing of networking, parsing, and saving core data is working. And then as you pull things apart and start to say, hey, I want to check uh, individually networking, individually parsing, individually core, core data, uh, then you can start to to actually have that, that single test that was still sort of testing that the whole flow worked. But then you're able to have these more granular tests that when something breaks, then you have the ability to laser focus in on what broke. Um, one of the things that, that I'm a, an advocate of, uh, that I think is sometimes a little bit of a double-edged sword, um, is, uh, UI testing. At UIConf in 2016, I did a talk called Outside In. And the idea of, of this, this thing is that if there just aren't any seams or if, if you're at a point where your app is totally undocumented and like the, you ask, you ask your project manager, so what is the app supposed to do? And they're like, well, just use what, what's already there as the documentation. Like if you're working with an inherited code base where people just like slap stuff together as fast as possible to get out the door, you are going to run into that. Yeah. Um, and so it's something where having some kind of assurance that the app is doing what it needs to for users is really, really, really important because as you like, you, you may, you, you, you can sort of look at it like an old building with like a really, really nice facade. And, you know, the facade is gorgeous. It's really beautiful, like very nicely put together. And, you know, like I said, I used to live in Chicago. This happens a lot in Chicago. This actually is what happened to my old building in Chicago. <laughs> uh, they, so they put up a big scaffolding around the very, very nice facade. And then the rest of the building that's kind of crumbling behind it, they just knock down with a sledgehammer. Uh, and they rebuild it 
in a way that's that's better and you know using more modern techniques and and really in a place where they have a better idea that it's working well and then once that's up then they take the scaffolding off and then the building looks all shiny again right and so the idea with using the UI test as a scaffolding is you sort of put them up as a way to make sure that when you're taking that sledgehammer to everything uh, in in the crumbling building, you're not messing up functionality for the user. Yeah. And one of the things that is good about this technique, uh, if you sort of follow it through to its logical conclusion, is eventually you can take the scaffolding down. You can you can leave a few sort of um, all the way through UI tests, but then you've actually got all of these individual pieces more tested. Um, using unit tests, which run way faster. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And I think UI tests, to your point also, can be a great place to start because a lot of the times in order to write like really good unit tests that follow like all the best practices and the, you know, what, what the TDD book says that you should do and pure functions and input output and all that stuff. Uh, you need to make code changes a lot of the times. And you have to go in there, you have to create protocols or functions that you can mock. You have to create stubs for data. And there's all these kind of code changes that usually are associated with making code testable. But UI testing a lot of the time, and I love the title there of your talk and the, the scaffolding analogy, like the outside in, because uh, you know that's, that's really what UI tests are all about, is that you are performing actions on the UI rather than actually going in and fiddling with the code. You're saying, you know, press this button, make sure that the right screen is being displayed. And it can give you some really good, just like, very quick and easy, not quick in terms of running, but in terms of implementing um, tests that can kind of cover the app very widely. And one thing that I've started doing when I've been freelancing and taking over some projects just like you have is I've taken a look at some of the analytics and actually uh, been writing UI tests to cover the analytics. Because if I do that, I actually cover a lot of the different core user interactions. And that way I can make these like more under the hood fundamental changes and still be fairly confident that the user level interactions still work. That's a that's an interesting strategy. Um, yeah, because it is something where, particularly for larger businesses that like rely on the analytics to run their business and make business decisions, exactly making sure that the analytics fire is actually fairly important. Um, and so it is something where you know finding that that sort of way into it. I think the way that I I generally go into it is from the point of view that like you can have the world's best architected app and it can be really really pretty looking. If it doesn't work, you're nobody's going to use it. Right. And, um, you know, I think a a lot of things that people sometimes forget uh, or or sort of uh, uh, push aside when they're going for like a 100% test coverage or whatever is like, you can have 100% test coverage and an app that doesn't actually do what the user needs it to do. It can it can do what you told it to do. But is what you told it to do what the user needs it to do? Eh, maybe not. Yeah, because at the end of the day, tests are just code, right? And they can even have bugs. They can have the wrong specification. So yeah, I, I agree with that. Like you have to start with the perspective of what is this app trying to achieve and what is it trying to do and what are some of the interactions that we need to make happen? You know, it, it, it's one of those things where being able to sort of look at it from the user's perspective rather than just from a pure standpoint of what percentage of testing do stuff do I have tested 
that's a really, really good place to be able to figure out, okay, where do I start? Cause I think one of, one of the, one of the questions I always tell people to ask themselves, uh, when they, they're trying to figure out where to start testing is what is the piece of your app that if it breaks, people are coming after you with torches and pitchforks? Test that. Start with <laughs> probably a good idea. <laughs> Avoid the torches and pitchforks. That's a good motivation. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's just sort of one of those things where I, I think particularly because a lot of people sort of run into this problem of like every a lot, a lot of testing stuff starts from a perspective of like, OK, you've already been you, you either need to be sold on the benefits of testing or you're completely sold on the benefits of testing, and now you need to go way down the rabbit hole. Right. Um, and I think one of the things that I've seen a lot is people who are sold on the benefit of testing, but have absolutely no idea where to start. And I think that's sort of a thing where, as a community, uh, I think that's something that we can really do better on. Um, but I think from a standpoint of like, where do I start? Like, start with the stuff that's absolutely mission critical to your app and then sort of then start and then go to the stuff that breaks a lot. Uh, Yeah, because because then you can know when and why it broke. Yeah, you can also get a much, much clearer target of where you're supposed to make the fix, because a lot of the times when we get a bug report, it looks something like this button doesn't work or when I click this button, nothing happens or I get this error message or something like that. And then the debugging starts and you have to spend hours and hours debugging this problem. And sure, tests might not always save the day and always catch all the problems. But a lot of the times it can give you a great indication of where the problem actually occurred because you can say, okay, this logic is tested and I know that given this input that the user has told me that they did, uh, the test should have caught that. So I know that the problem might be somewhere else and it can give you kind of a good indication. And once you reach that point, you actually figure out what the problem was, then adding another test to kind of cover that will like continuously improve your coverage. Yeah, and I think one thing that that can be really helpful, um, so one of the things that that uh, people talk about in terms of UI tests taking forever. One of the things that people sort of forget about is that when you re- write a UI test, you can actually just sort of like run through part of it and then get to the part, like basically say, okay, I got to this part and now I have a breakpoint and now I'm trying to figure out what went wrong. Yeah. And like that's something where like if you've ever had to like put in a really long password by hand, like 15 times, like, it's so annoying. And so being able to, being able to have something where you can say, okay, the user told me they put in this username and this password, and then they did this, that, the other thing, and then something broke. You can actually go through and make a test that says, okay, put in this username, put this password, do this, do that, do the other thing, and then see what happens. And you can, you can sort of mess around with different variables. You can say, okay, if there's no internet, what happens? If there's, um, you know, if they, if they had gotten some kind of error earlier, what happens? And you're able to, to more quickly track down that stuff, uh, without really, having to sit there poking at your phone over and over and over and over again. Absolutely. The other thing that I found really, really helpful about it is before I started testing, um, the way that I would get get bugs is sort of I would write a feature and then three months later when the app went to QA, I would get a ticket back from QA that said this doesn't work. And I would have to sort of go back into the code and look at the code and go, what was I even thinking I was doing here? And <laughs> getting back into that, that mental state is time consuming. Yeah. Um, being, having those tests and being able to say, okay, I'm going to test all these different scenarios. And then 
uh, having those tests that can fail when you change something and it breaks something someplace else, that points you in the right direction so much faster because you still have that mental context of what was I trying to do. And when you get that same thing where you've had these tests, you're, um, you know, you send the, the app off to users and a user finds some, some way that you hadn't anticipated to break it. You can at least look back at your tests and have this idea of like, oh, well, what was I expecting this to do? Yeah, absolutely. It can give you a great indication of, you know, where to start and where to start picking things apart. And uh, I also really loved uh, what you said earlier, which is, you know, you don't want to click uh, that button a hundred times or type in that long password. And I agree, like using tests is in many ways like using scripts and automation and things like that. Like it can really help speed up your work, uh, not only like in terms of, you know, preventing bugs and, uh, you know, doing it from kind of like a, you know, policy perspective, but rather just like really making things easier to work with, to keep you in that context and also to really automate like going through the app and testing all the different screens and not having to always, you know, do that those things manually because, you know, we give UI tests as an example, uh, sometimes a lot of criticism for being slow, but they're still usually a lot faster than doing all that stuff manually, which takes, you know, a long time, especially when it's repetitive and you're doing it a lot. Yeah, it's so much faster than doing it manually. And like, there's a there's a thing uh, where you can actually turn up the animation speed on uh, CA layers. Yeah. Uh, and you can basically say, okay, I want this to run 50 times as fast as it normally would. And it's like... And you're like, holy cow! <laughs> exactly. Um, it's uh, I, th- I think uh, Peter Peter Steinberger has a blog post about about it where he's he uh, talked about uh, making uh, Kif, which is a UI testing framework, run at ludicrous speed. And uh, it's uh, uh, I think it's the same trick that you can use with pretty much any with with pretty much any testing framework. So it's pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something where you know developers always complain about. Oh, I have so many meetings. I don't want to do all this context switching. Like that's still a thing with code. Like if you're in that context, you're able to write these tests way more easily. Like I always, I, I hear some people who are like, "Oh, well, we'll just write tests at the end." And it's like, no, 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 don't write tests at the end. Write tests when you're writing stuff because you still have that context to be able to say, "Okay, that didn't pass." Did that not pass because I am feeding bad data into this thing and it's not doing things the way that I want it to? Or did it not pass because of some weird thing that I did uh, setting up the test? Yeah, absolutely. In many ways, tests are like documentation about your assumptions or about your intent of the code, right? Like if you have technical documentation that you're writing like for your methods and for your properties, those will usually be like, you know, you have a title property, maybe you say this is the most prominently displayed text or something like that. Uh, but then when you actually write the test, you can show both to yourself, to your coworkers and to, you know, future you uh, in a year or something, you can show that this was the actual intention that I had when I wrote this code and the kind of assumptions that I made along the way, because even if we're trying to make our code really flexible, we always have to make assumptions at some point. Future me is always one of my biggest audiences. Yeah. Um, it, I, I think, uh, so I have an absolutely garbage memory. And so it's one of the reasons that I, if anybody ever digs up a whole bunch of my old code, like it's commented to within an inch of its life. Um, <laughs> and I finally got better at like, okay, maybe I can do more of this through naming. Um, and I think I've, I've, I've fallen into a, uh, comments are for why, not what. 
Um, having something that you can refer back to to go, what was I even trying to do? Um, because everybody everybody thinks they have a better memory than they do. And, uh, at least most people do. Yeah, and especially about details. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, even though I fully acknowledge that I have a garbage memory, there are still times where I'm like, oh, I should remember why I was doing that. Why was I doing <laughs> that? I have no yeah. idea. And so it, it's, it, it is something where having those tests there to help sort of Validate what your assumptions are. Figure out how things are are doing are, are doing the stuff is really 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 helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So we've now talked about different kinds of testing. We've talked about unit testing when you are verifying things kind of in a, as a unit. You're sending it some input. You're asserting what output comes back. We've talked about UI testing. You know how we can automate the UI and perform different user interactions and things like that. So. What would you say for you are kind of the differences between these two types of testing? And when do you use which one? Like when you're faced with a certain problem or when you're implementing a new feature, how do you decide kind of what to unit test versus what to use a UI test for? That's a good question. I think um, so a good example is like a login screen. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that you can actually break it out into uh, testable pieces, either some of the validation logic around like your username or your password, or um, potentially like if you've got a phone number or something in there, or just sort of validating that, okay, this button like theoretically shouldn't enable unless both of these are uh, have passed validation or something like that. Or if an error happens here, like this is what should display. Um, and that most of that stuff you can actually test completely without UI. Um, because it's basically something where as long as you're hooking up validation to your UI correctly, you don't have to test every different potential scenario, uh, with the UI. So you could say, okay, uh, if the user leaves this field blank, the error should be, please enter an email address. Yeah. If the user enters something that isn't an email address, uh, then you display an error that says that's not an email address. Um, and you don't have to test each of those at the UI level. You just have to test one of them. Uh, and so you can create all of these additional tests that validate that if an error happens, uh, the display stuff is going to happen correctly. But you, you only have to test with the UI once. So as long as you've got sort of that whole pipeline set up, as long as each thing is hooked up correctly, then your UI is going to work exactly the way that you want it to. And so you can, you can basically say, okay, I'll test this it's like success once, failure once um, to, to make sure that everything is hooked up the way that I want it to. But then all of the other failure cases uh, that you need to still handle, you can test without your UI, which goes way faster. Yeah, absolutely. Because like we mentioned earlier, a UI test can be easier to write a lot of times because you only have to interact with the UI. You only have to like script your UI to say, you know, tap this text field, enter this text, tap the other text field, enter the text there, press the login button, and then verify that the right screen is being displayed, like your onboarding screen or something like that. And that is usually easier to write in terms of just the test itself, but the UI test takes longer to run because it has to do all those interactions. And you can do a lot of nice tricks to speed up animations and these kind of things, but it doesn't kind of get away from the fact that you do have to do those interactions. And also that the test runner has to send all those events to the app to actually input the text and do all those kind of things. So 
A unit test is usually way faster to run, but does require kind of you to go in and do that kind of code level verification, which can be really useful when you have things like that, like a login controller or a login manager or whatever you call it, where you are sending it like the username and password and you're verifying that either like an error comes out or if you're offline, maybe you're simulating that with like a you know, uh, mocked network that is saying that, hey, I'm offline right now. And you can verify that the right errors come out the other end. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it, it's definitely something, one thing to keep in mind is that like, when you're running UI tests, usually in the time that it takes to run one UI test, you can usually run several thousand unit tests. <laughs> right. And yeah. so it, it's something where, um, you know, UI tests are really, really helpful, but they're also something that uh, should sort of be used somewhat sparingly because they do take, even even if you are running them at ludicrous speed, they still take a way longer time than, than uh, unit tests. All right, we're going to get back to the testing subject in our Q&A section because we've actually gotten a lot of questions from you, the wonderful audience, about testing. But before we do that, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about your recent adventures into Kotlin and Android development. Uh, because I know that a lot of people, myself included, are very curious about Android and kind of want to try it out, especially now with Kotlin, where Kotlin and Swift are so similar. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank this episode's sponsor. And it's actually the very first sponsor of the show that is back again, and it's my good friends at Ray Wendelik. Now, you probably already know Ray Wendelik for their massive library of high-quality tutorials about iOS, macOS, other Apple platforms, and beyond. But did you know that they also offer amazing video courses about a wide range of topics? And even better is that right now, they are running a huge Black Friday sale with massive discounts on all of their videos and all of their books as well. When you subscribe to Ray Wendelik's videos, you don't only get access to one or a few courses. No, you get access to all of them. That's over 1,500 videos, and they release new ones all the time as well, which you'll keep getting access to. Those include courses for beginners, tutorials, and also dozens and dozens of screencasts and shorter, more focused topics for advanced developers. There's simply something for everyone here. Now, normally the subscription costs $240 per year, which is already a great deal. But during this Black Friday sale, that price drops all the way down to $99 per year. That's right, less than half of the regular price. And the best part is that you'll get to keep that price for as many years as you'd like. No price increases, no surprises, just $99 per year for over 1,500 programming videos. Now that's what I call an amazing deal. Apart from this discount on their videos, you've also got great discounts on their big selection of books as well. You've got classics like iOS Animations by Tutorials and their awesome RX Swift book, both written by really good friends of mine, and new books about iOS architecture, machine learning, AR, VR, and so much more, with book bundles starting at just $59.99. So, make sure to take advantage of this massive Black Friday sale by going to store.raywendelik.com. But you do have to hurry a little bit, since this sale ends on November the 26th. So, don't wait. 
Head over to store.raywenderlich.com right now and pick up some amazing new books or subscribe to their massive catalog of videos for only $99 per year. Thank you so much to Ray Wenderlich for supporting Swift by Sundell yet again, which really helps making this show and all of my weekly articles possible. All right, so now let's talk about Kotlin and Android developments. So um, first of all, um, tell us a little bit about like how did you get into Kotlin and Android development and uh, what were your kind of first impressions of Kotlin versus something like Swift? So yeah, so uh, I've actually been doing Android development pretty much as long as I've been doing iOS development. Um, so I was I, I, I was not a computer science person. I uh, actually have a film degree of all things. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, when I decided that I... So I, I actually went and worked in television production for about seven years. Uh, and then I realized that like I really didn't have the passion for it anymore. And it's the kind of business where if you don't have the passion for it, you should not do it because it's kind of brutal. <laughs> um, yeah, I can imagine. You know, if you have the passion for it, it's absolutely worth doing. But if you don't, it's so not. Um, and I decided to become a developer partly because I was so fascinated by smartphones and, and all of their potential. And um, when I was starting out, I didn't really know if I wanted to do iOS or Android. And uh, it, in typical fashion, uh, similar to how I, was, how I am when I'm like, oh, well, I finished that thing on time. Now let me cram 27 other things into my schedule. Um, <laughs> I was like, well, por que no los dos? And I, I really started um, doing uh, Java, Android, uh, back in the Froyo days. Uh, and then uh, iOS uh, 3-ish, I think, um, was when I started. And so... It's been interesting to see both um, platforms evolve over the over the years, and it's it's really interesting because Kotlin and Swift have fairly similar origin stories in terms of them both sort of starting as Skunkworks projects in about 2010. Yeah, um, and they're both languages that are driven by people who want to take this older language that they're working with and make it more functional, make it um, make it more pleasurable to use and make it something that can really be a path forward. Yeah, it's very clear that both uh, Swift and Kotlin addresses the same suite of problems. For example, both of them have support for optionals, which was a big problem in both Java and Objective-C for different reasons, funnily enough, where in uh, Objective-C you had this like very loosely based type system, very dynamically typed, where you um, could have a value that was nil, for example, and you could just send it a message and nothing would happen. But as soon as you would put it into an array, things would crash. Yeah. And then on the Java side, you had kind of, you know, a, a slightly different version of this problem where you could also have values that would be null, but then as soon as you would call a method on them, you would get like a null pointer exception. And both Kotlin and Swift tries to address this problem, like, you know, which is fundamentally the same problem that some values can be missing, like nil or null. And actually, like, baking it into the language as, like, a proper language feature with optionals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's one of the big reasons that I think Kotlin was very attractive to Android developers. Um, because 
I, I think almost every Android developer has gotten an absolute stack of crash reports uh, that that all end in the words "null pointer exception." <laughs> exactly. And um, yeah. you know, I, I think it is something. Um, you know, Android's view lifecycle uh, is very, very different than iOS's, uh, and it there are a fairly large number of points during which uh, the Android operating system can just sort of kill everything. And that winds up potentially causing null pointer exceptions on a fairly regular basis. And so probably about 2014 or 15, I can't really remember, but um, Jake Wharton, uh, who's a big uh, Android developer advocate, Jake has basically been uh, one of the most influential voices on Android for, for years and years and years now. And uh, he wrote a white paper uh, sort of examining Kotlin as a potential uh, Android language. And there have been some other uh, attempts to get uh, sort of more strongly typed uh, languages like Scala and other functional languages that worked on the JVM uh, to, to work with Android. Kotlin was really the first one that got a lot of uptake from Android developers because of Jake Wharton's white paper. This was also around the same time as uh, the first version of Swift was coming out. Yeah. And so, you know, the Android developers were interested in something that that could potentially pre- prevent a lot of the problems that they were seeing, particularly once Android went or once Kotlin went 1.0, and even more so once uh, Google announced official support for Kotlin. Um, it's really taken off in the in the Android community as a great way to write safer code and code that's frankly just more fun. Yeah, whenever you hear uh, Android developers talk about Kotlin, it just sounds, you could just replace the word Kotlin with Swift and the word Android with iOS, and it would be very, very similar. Because I, f- I think that a lot of people feel the same way about Kotlin, that is, you know, it's safer, less verbose, and more fun, and things like that. Uh, but what are some of the differences between Swift and Kotlin? Like, what would you say are some of the biggest differences, just in terms of the language, uh, switching between kind of Kotlin and Swift and iOS and Android? Um, that's a good question. I think switching between iOS and Android, I think is a little bit less a good comparison. Just again, because the, the life cycle is so damn different and it leads to all sorts of different and very odd problems. Um, and I think it's something where for me, uh, some of, some of the, the pieces that are coming into Kotlin that seem like they will eventually be coming to Swift, um, like coroutines. Yeah. So I know that uh, Latner's got a literal manifesto on uh, async await and the actor model and all this other stuff. Um, Kotlin uh, just had coroutines, uh, which is essentially async await, um, go live on uh, uh, Kotlin 1.3 a few weeks ago. And so this is something where pieces of that are already being implemented. And the idea is that you want to be able to write asynchronous code that in a way that is easier to follow and uh, in a way where uh, you can have multiple things happening at the same time, but you don't necessarily um, need to have all these horrible nested callback blocks. Um, you know, callback hell is a thing in Kotlin too. So, right, yeah. um, you know, it, it's definitely something where um, being able to have that 
at a language level is really, really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. We talked a bit about it on the last episode with Max about futures and promises and how coroutines uh, together with futures and promises could be a super powerful combination. Because yeah, in any language that deals with asynchronous code, you always end up with these, you know, this big chain of callbacks that are calling a callback, they're calling a callback. And yeah, it's really cool to see languages like Kotlin adopt the coroutine model and you know, some of the really good benefits that can come from that. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's it, it's hard to sort of compare apples and oranges in terms of approaches, particularly since, uh, you know, the, the Kotlin apples are essentially completed and the Swift oranges uh, have not been started. Um, <laughs> but it's um, but it is something where, you know, it's really useful to see how much clearer it makes code. It also makes it um, helpful to sort of see uh, a lot of places where right now, um, tools like Futures and Promises, and then also tools like RX Swift are used um, to sort of simplify the callback chain when multiple things need to happen. Um, it's nice to be able to see something and see a future where that kind of stuff isn't 100% necessary, where you can actually have something at the language level that allows you to um to to handle all that stuff. I think that's going to be that's it's going to be really really neat. Yeah, absolutely. One big thing that Kotlin does differently than Swift is generics. Um because uh Kotlin is tied to uh, uh Java's generics model, all of their uh generics are type erased. Uh this is the 8000 word chapter that I was talking about earlier. Right. <laughs> um and yeah, it turns out explaining generics to people who don't know what generics are and have absolutely no frame of reference takes a lot of words. But like I said, Kotlin's generics are type erased and that means that there's some fun stuff that you can do in Swift that you can't do in Kotlin without a very special like compiler directive that says, "Actually, I need you to hang on to the type for this uh and inline it so that uh, you still know what type it is when you're when you're running it, and so it's it's definitely something where you have to think about generics somewhat differently than you do in Swift. Yeah, I guess that can be a little bit of a blessing and a curse, right? Because yeah. uh, a lot of the problems that people have with generics in Swift are related to the fact that all the types are retained very strongly and you have associated types. And as long as you have a protocol, for example, which has an associated type or returns self somewhere, uh, you cannot really reference that protocol just as it is. You have to just use that as a constraint. And this is something that is very, very common for developers to face when they start working with generics, where you will try to um, create an array where your element type is of the protocol you just created, but then the compiler will say that's not possible. Yeah, because it has an associated type. Exactly. And in languages like Kotlin, you have the opposite problem where things like that are possible. But then in Swift, you can write this really like clever code, which is like, yeah, since I know that I have a type T here and has an associated type uh, of, um, you know, result type, for example, then I can reference that later. And I can say, well, as long as my type T result conforms to decodable, then I can just decode that directly because the type system has that guarantee all the way down. So yeah, I guess it's, uh, you know, pros and cons to different, different approaches. And ideally, we'd like to find some kind of middle ground where we can get the best out of both worlds. Yeah, I think it would be nice if you could sort of like more easily specify like, yes, I want this to be type erased or no, I don't want this to be type erased. But like, honestly, from a standpoint of how that would work in the programming language, I have absolutely no idea what the, yeah, what the, tricky. what, what the, what the influence is. And I think it is something where, you know, once you come up with, with, a model for that, 
you wind up making a lot of assumptions based on that model and getting it to a point where you can sort of be like, well, I guess I want to do it this other way. Like that turns into a whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that's interesting about Kotlin versus Swift is that Swift is obviously developed by Apple uh, and and often largely for Apple. Um, Whereas uh, Kotlin is developed by JetBrains who make uh, IDEs like IntelliJ and AppCode and Android Studio. Yeah. And so um, they have a different set of incentives in terms of, well, how do we, what are our incentives to get this running everywhere? What are the, what are our incentives to get this to go in as many places as possible? And, um, for the Kotlin team, basically the more stuff that they can get running Kotlin, the better, because then more people will use Kotlin. Yeah. And JetBrains is working on Kotlin native, um, which is this thing, which, uh, allows Kotlin to be compiled using this uh, compiler called Conan, uh, with a K, and um, it outputs LLVM bytecode, which is the same stuff that the Swift compiler puts out. And uh, it's something where, uh, because it does that, it's able to be compiled down and run on lots and lots of different stuff. And so it can run on iOS, it can run on Windows, it can run on Linux, it can run on Raspberry Pi, um, it can run in WebAssembly now. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that Kotlin can do because they've decided to take this particular route. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of people right now who are looking for cross-platform solutions because they might need that for build to build an app quicker or to you know support multiple platforms with just like one developer or something like that. So what do you say? Like, do you think that Kotlin Native is kind of becoming more and more kind of a cross-platform alternative, uh, or is it more something that most people will use kind of on a lower level to kind of share logic between platforms? I mean, I think it's 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 potentially either one. I mean, I've definitely seen. Uh, a number of places where people are sharing logic between the iOS and Android app using something like JavaScript. Um, the, the disadvantage of which, which is that JavaScript is uh, often kind of slow. Um, and it's also, and it's also not strongly typed uh, unless you want to deal with TypeScript, which is a whole other can of worms. But, um, you know, I think one of the things that I really like about Kotlin native that I haven't liked about pretty much any other cross-platform thing that I've seen uh, is that it's really designed to be mobile first. Um, you know, it, it is something where one of the big advantages of it is that um, it is compiled. It is something where, you know, you don't really have to spin up this whole separate thing in order to actually run run the code. Like there is some Kotlin runtime, but it's not it's not like this entire different thing the way that it is when you have to spin up a bunch of JavaScript. And I think, you know, I've always been someone who, who is a little bit cautious about cross-platform things because when you're supporting a cross-platform framework, you're supporting whatever platforms that you are supporting with that framework and that framework. Yeah. And it, it, always adds this layer of what on earth is happening <laughs> um, that 
uh, you know, it, particularly if you have, um, you know, I, I saw this a lot with like PhoneGap back in the day where you would have a JavaScript developer who was doing a bunch of stuff and they would run into a problem. And the question became, okay, is this an iOS problem? Is this a JavaScript problem? Or is this a PhoneGap problem? Yeah. And it makes troubleshooting stuff really annoying. And I think with something where you're working with um, with stronger types, uh, as in Kotlin and something where it, it's really sort of compiled down to the same bytecode as Swift is, the number of places where things can go wrong winds up being significantly reduced. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that, um, is really, really important when it comes to looking at what your options are for cross platform. Um, so they, they've got, um, basically Kotlin headers generated for pretty much everything in iOS. Uh, it's pretty crazy how they're doing it. I, I don't 100% understand the mechanism for it, but you can write a lot of uh, iOS code in Kotlin and it works just fine. Um, but I think the thing that I see as it being uh, more valuable for is something where you can centralize a lot of your business logic. So your networking, your view models, um, you know, just anything where the logic needs to be the same across iOS and Android, but the display needs to really be, uh, something that is more appropriate for the platform. Yeah. I think that Kotlin native could be a really great, uh, alternative to something like C++, because a lot of people or a lot of big companies, they use C++ to do just what you mentioned, to share the business logic, to share, you know, really kind of core data models, to share things like syncing and networking. And that was definitely true at Spotify, for example, where I worked. And it's true for many big companies like Facebook and these kind of, you know, ones that have this kind of logic that you really want to share across platforms. And as we're moving to this world where we want to use these kind of more modern, nice languages, you would want something that is more like Swift and that has like all the nice features where you don't have to worry so much about pointers and memory management uh, where you, that you really have to do in, in language like C++ or to your point earlier, like if you're using something like JavaScript where you have to fire up a whole kind of JavaScript runtime and run through that and everything becomes asynchronous. And uh, I see Kotlin Native as a great alternative to that where... You know, since it is, like you mentioned, compiled on the same compiler infrastructure, is compiled into the same kind of code, uh, machine code that Swift is, you could run them side by side and you could write your iOS specific code in Swift and then you could share kind of like a thin layer between all platforms using Kotlin native and write it using a very similar syntax and have that nice interoperability and uh, have everything run in the same kind of process. You don't have to do all these crazy hoops to send messages across and things like that. And yeah, I think that could be potentially really interesting for a lot of teams. Yeah. And I started messing around with a bunch of stuff on that. Um, I, I've got a couple of uh, open source repos, um, uh, one that I'm working on for work and one that I just sort of started messing around on with on my own, um, where I was able to get um, the networking working and I was able to get some sort of UI styling stuff uh, working cross-platform. And I feel like it's something where um, I do see this as something that's a lot more promising, but I think I also want to see how it works in a production app um, at some point fairly soon, because I think it is something where I want to really see 
um, how the how how the the performance compares and where some of the sort of sharper edges that you you only really see when you try to do it in a real app. Yeah, very interesting. Looking forward to see where that goes. Yeah, for sure. All right, Alan, what do you say? Should we uh, jump over to our Q&A section and answer some questions from the audience? Let's do it. Let's do it. So we have our first question here comes from Rutger Vromans, and he wants us to talk a little bit about what frameworks that we use for testing. So do we prefer something like Quick or Nimble or Kif or Facebook Snapshot, or do we have any other recommendations for testing frameworks? So what are some of your favorites? So for me, I actually mostly use just plain vanilla XE test uh, for unit tests. Um, I know there are a lot of people who like the way that Quick and Nimble sort of force you into uh, a bit more of a given when then uh, situation. But personally, I I really don't like that style of testing and I find it just harder to parse mentally. Um, so I just, I just wind up writing most of my, my tests using, uh, XE test case, uh, for, uh, for unit tests. Yeah. For, for UI tests, um, I had been using KIF for a really, really long time, um, for that. Uh, so KIF is, uh, keep it functional. It's from Square. Uh, and it's like one of the, one of the most battle tested UI testing frameworks. Uh, it's been around pretty much forever. Um, yeah, the nice thing about KIF as opposed to XCUI, uh, is that it it runs in a uh, unit testing bundle as opposed to a UI testing bundle. So the way that Apple has XCUI testing set up is that uh, the UI test runner is actually a completely separate process than your application. Whereas um, when you're doing unit tests, those unit tests are running in the same process as your application. So what that means is that in, in unit tests, you're able to do things like mocking and, um, sort of feeding individual values into a particular, uh, item like really, really easily. Whereas with XCUI, you really can't do that. You really can only sort of pass some information into your UI tests, uh, using like launch arguments or environment variables. And yeah. Personally, I really don't like that because what it forces me to do is add test logic to my code uh, that's going to be shipping. And I really hate doing that. <laughs> um, yeah. Personally, I find it to be an anti-pattern. I think if it's not going to ship, it shouldn't be in your main bundle. Um, and I, I think the way that XCUI is set up, like I understand why it's set up the way that it's set up because it wants to be as black box as possible. Like it wants to not know anything about your application. I think the thing is, is that like that's a much more useful paradigm if, if you've got QA people who are using, um, XCUI testing. Um, you know, people who don't want to test parts of the application or test that, um, some things are working, uh, given a particular state. But if you want to sort of say, okay, let's live in a magical world where the internet never goes down and, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and the server can only return what I tell it to return. That's a place where you really need to be in process to be able to do that in any kind of efficient way. Yeah, it's definitely like, again, pros and cons, right? And it's definitely a big challenge when working with the Xcode's built-in UI testing framework that you are running out of process and you have to rely on just sending these commands to the app. 
But and on, on one hand, that is a big disadvantage, and I, I agree with you that it's sometimes it's it's a bit of an anti-pattern. You have to add these testing paths to uh, to your actual like real shipping code. Uh, but on the other hand, it's usually a pretty nice thing that you have that clear separation between your app and your tests. Where you know it's easy when we're writing tests to sometimes rely too much on implementation details, and we are importing like the internals of the code, and then we are really kind of like, you know, verifying against those internals rather than actually verifying what happened. And that can't happen with with Xcode's UI tests where you are just like, you have to rely on just like tap this button, see that this works, like see that this label was displayed. And that aspect of it, I really like, but it would be nice to be able to also sometimes dive in and customize things. And uh, you mentioned earlier about launch arguments and environment variables. And um, the way I like to set these up to not end up in that anti-pattern that you mentioned is to make them so that they are not just tied to testing. So for example, if I need to mock my network in my tests and I want to make my UI test faster by having a, you know, just a simple HTTP server running locally that serves some static mock JSON, for example, uh, I won't you know, add a launch argument or an environment variable. This is like testing mode true, but rather I will just enable a base URL, like a base uh, address to be injected using a launch argument. And then I can also use that for development. So it makes my app more flexible in many ways. And it doesn't just tie it into my testing code, which I think is kind of a, you know, is a kind of a fine balance uh, to, to walk. Yeah. And I think that's definitely something where, um, you know, part, part of the question is that like, is everybody actually going to go through the effort of having a mock server that right. they can spin up that 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 uh, has the same endpoints as their their application uh, that can serve all that stuff, or is there or, or are they just sort of just trying to read JSON off of disk? Um, and I think it is something where there's a lot of different ways to solve this problem. I do think the most useful place for XCUI is um, with end to end tests where you you want to test okay like not just in you know happy wonderful pretend world where the internet always works but you know in the real world let's go out and try to actually go through an entire flow of the application and you know it's always a trade off between control and um and isolation and uh for me I tend to be a control freak. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It definitely comes down to like a healthy mix of requirements and personal preferences. Right. And also a lot about using kind of the right tool for the right job. And I don't think there's anything that says that you can't use both KIF and XCUI tests in the same project. You absolutely can. Absolutely. And I think that's actually a part of building like a really solid testing strategy is having many different kinds of tests that verify different things, where you might have XCUI tests for your end-to-end -end tests, like, like you mentioned. You might use KIF where you need to mock the dates. And if you have some UI that really heavily relies on that that you want to actually write the UI test for, you might use KIF for those type of tests. And then you might use unit tests for the rest where you're actually just verifying the logic itself. So yeah. yeah, I think that it doesn't really matter at the end of the day which framework or which style you choose to write your test. The most important part is to actually just write the test, right? And to try to identify like what 
parts of the code base do we want to verify using what different techniques and to try to really like form a good testing strategy around that that you kind of agree on in the team like which techniques do we use for which problems yeah and i think the 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 answer that i always give people is like the best testing framework is the one that actually makes you write tests yeah absolutely. um you know it, it, it's something where i think you know i've worked with people who really do prefer um quick and nimble because they it just sort of works better with their mental model and you know it's something where i'm like great do it that way like whatever makes it easier for you to write tests like let's start there and i think there are some people who are like no everything must be exactly the same but it's like eh, is it all getting tested like start start with like get it all tested then argue about like okay everything should be x or y like that's that's that I think is is it's much much better to allow people to have some flexibility in how they test things so that they do test more things. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we just spoke about some of the kind of shortcomings or you know trade-offs when using XE UI tests. So I think this next question here is uh, is a good kind of follow-up to that, where we have Honza Dvorsky, who actually works at Apple on some of these tools. Uh, who wants us to uh, talk about what can the XC test team at Apple actually do to better advocate for testing in general, like XC test unit and UI testing tools, best practices, etc., outside of WWDC? So, what would you say are some of the ways that Apple can help here to actually make testing more of a thing on iOS? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is a great question. Actually, Hansa uh, did uh, one of the one of the two uh, testing sessions uh, at DubDub this year. So, I like that he's asking about. How about not at DubDub? Um, yeah, I think that's really great too. Um, I think one thing that would be really, really helpful is to provide some examples to people of how to add tests to existing code um, and uh, sort of provide some more of the stuff of where to start. Because I think there's a lot of um, testing material out there where if you're starting from scratch, you know, there's tons and tons of stuff about TDD. Um, there's tons and tons of stuff about, hey, here's how you can architect stuff to be testable from scratch. One of the things that there's not nearly as much information about out there is how do I start to pull things apart in a way that makes them testable? And then how do I like figure out where to start? I think having someone sort of talk through some of that, particularly if you could, if we could hear, you know, I, I know Apple hates talking about how the sausage is made, but <laughs> if there's, if there's any app within Apple, um, where the, where they would be willing to talk about, Hey, like we built this like five years ago. It had no tests and we started adding tests to it. And this is where and how we started. That would be immensely useful because it's something where, um, that's the situation that the vast number of, of developers are in, uh, rather than I'm going to come in and just do everything exactly the correct way from scratch all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And they've done things like this in the past. For example, with the WWDC app, they showed like, here's how to use multiple data sources or child view controllers and things like that. And here are some concrete examples taken from that WWDC app. So I think that could be a really great strategy. Yeah, and that's definitely something that they've done a lot at DubDub. Uh, I think it would, would be something that could be interesting to do outside of Dub Dub on a more regular basis. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with you that more examples around testing could be uh, very, very valuable, uh, you know, on a continuous basis, kind of all year, not just at WWDC. Because one thing that I hear from a lot of people is about Apple's sample code, where, you know, if we're supposed to write tests and separate concerns and, you know, use all these different patterns and best practices, you know, how come that when you download some sample code from Apple, it's usually one big view controller that shows the what to do. And I get that, like as someone who has to write a lot of sample code, I know that the easiest way or, you know, the most approachable way to write some sample code is to try to take away all the other things, all the other details that are not relevant to what you're actually trying to show. So for example, if you want to provide a sample about core data, the easiest way for most people to digest that, just learning about core data, is to get just like, here's a view controller that implements core data, here's all the core data stuff, now you can learn about it. And not to you know have a hundred different classes that have perfect separation of concern just to kind of show some architecture. So I think on some level it's important when we are reading sample code from Apple or from anybody to have that you know, have that frame of mind to not look too much to kind of the overall overall architecture, but more look to like, what are we actually trying to learn here? But that being said, I think that if the XE test team were to be more involved in the production of, of this kind of sample code and to maybe not like completely re-engineer it, but to kind of promote some of these like best practices that make for more testable code, like dependency injection, removing singletons, uh, having things mockable, things like that. From the start, then I think more people, as they are learning from, from the sample code, would get into that kind of mindset and they would kind of find it more natural to use some of these techniques instead of having always be an afterthought. Yeah, I, I have definitely noticed that more recently produced Apple sample code uh, that, that's come with, uh, uh, particularly with um, more recent DubDub things, has had tests in it. Yeah, um, that's great. And I think that's been really, really good to see. Um, I think that's definitely something that Apple can keep doing. Um, and I think it's also something where um, having something that um, people can look at specifically as an example of how to write tests and how to architect for tests would be really helpful because I think it is something that um, is really, really, again, really, really hard to start with. And so, again, like figuring out where to start is like such a barrier for a lot of people. And being able to say, okay, this is how I can pull this apart. This is how I can do this. I think that would be a huge, huge thing for for, for them to help out with. All right. So uh, our last question here comes from Brian Luby, who I think that you used to work with. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Hi, Luby. I, I miss that dude. He's such a good guy. Nice. That's awesome. And he also has a really great question, which is uh, to help ease future refactoring pain. Do you know of any strategies or examples on how to achieve more loose coupling between your test code and your production code? Because a lot of the times we change the production code and that frequently requires us to change the test code. So we talked earlier about like how the really like good tests, like tests that kind of stand the test of time are the ones that don't make too many assumptions about the implementation details. But of course, that's easier said than done. So what are some of your kind of top tips on how to fully decouple or as much as possible, at least our kind of production code from the test code? This is this is actually a really excellent question, um, and I I think it's it's something that I sometimes will struggle with, um, partly because I think sometimes 
uh, when you do have to change the production code, it's because either you've made a poor assumption in your test code uh, previously, or because the requirements have actually changed. Um, and that's something where I think the the biggest thing that you can do is sort of try to isolate things in their own uh, little helpers, basically, uh, either in protocols or in extensions or even just in sort of like uh, individual classes that do things like validation um you know things where you can you can actually test them separately from the rest of the application um so that if potentially requirements change there's a clear difference from okay i had to change this piece of code and then i either added this test or i had to change this test in a related way yeah um you know it's it's definitely something where Again, like, I think one of the biggest advantages of tests is that it forces you to separate things out into tiny, tiny pieces. And it forces you to say, okay, I want to make this as granular as possible so that um, in the future when I am uh, making these changes, I only have to change what is specifically changed because either the requirements have changed or I figured out that I did something wrong. Um, that's That's... To me, that's the biggest thing. I think it's actually funny how so many of these kind of best practices or like, you know, architectural benefits, you know, they kind of come together where, like you mentioned, if you want to make your tech code more testable, you also have to separate it. And that's separation of concerns. And that's another kind of good thing and a good practice. And by having these like very separate building blocks and writing tests kind of for each one individually. You mentioned earlier that a good place to start is usually to just look at where can I find the input anywhere, you know, and I might test both the core data code and the networking code and the caching code in at once. But once you kind of, you're beyond that point, you know, try to break things down and see, you know, can I really just test this thing in separation, the decoding code or the caching code? Because that way, when your requirements change and you realize, well, I have to cache things longer or I have to change the caching solution or the sync solution, then you can just replace that part. And that's great both in terms of, you know, being able to refactor more easily, but it also manifests itself in the test code as well, where all your other tests that are we're testing all the other logic, they can remain the same. And it's just your kind of caching tests that have to be updated. Right. So one of the things that I, that I think uh, can be can be helpful with this is that um, integration tests that sort of maybe involve the UI, maybe don't, um, that allow you to sort of say, okay, do all of these pieces work together when I put them together? Um, that allows you to sort of say, okay, you know, I might have to make this one little change over here because the requirements have changed. But in the end, does the whole thing still work together? Um, and that's that's something that can be really, really useful to be able to, to test. And I think it's it, it's definitely something where, you know, there's MV insert random combination of letters here. Um, <laughs> but I think the the big reason that all of these different things exist is that the idea is that you want to... Um, make sure that your models are relatively dumb, your views are relatively dumb, and there's something in the middle that is putting things together. Yeah. Um, and whether that's view models or presenters or, um, I, you know, I have a thing that I like to call model controllers. Um, where oh, yeah, love model controllers. Or managers or whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's basically something where... Um, 
it's something where it's not necessarily hooking up uh, the view and the model the way that a view controller would, but it's maybe taking a model, taking some input, and then making changes to that model, or going out and getting more models, or doing some kind of uh, work that you don't necessarily want the model itself to do, because again, the model is supposed to be fairly dumb. And that allows you to have these things that that take an input and put out an output, which make which makes things way more testable. And I think, you know, if you look at any of these um, sort of layered um, architecture patterns that you see, that's absolutely the goal of what they're trying to do. Yeah, it's just about trying to introduce more levels of granularity, right? And sometimes we can joke that some of these architectures is just about adding more letters. <laughs> but and, and yeah, you know, they are adding more letters. But at the same time, by adding more letters, you are introducing... Uh, more kind of uh, different layers of abstraction and more granularity. And, you know, that can really be of help when you're trying to split things up in a more kind of uniform way. And But I also think, like you mentioned, there is also a lot of space for doing that inside of the MVC box as well, where there's nothing about MVC that says you can only have view controllers. You can have model controllers, logic controllers, whatever you want to call them. And these can all be kind of different objects that perform different tasks, and you can all test them like in separation. And that will really help when it comes to refactoring things and moving things around when you have these more building blocks that you can all put together in different ways. Yeah, I like to joke that that what my my particular preference for architecture is MVCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCCC
um, or uh, I have designatednerd.com, which I update way less frequently. I'm constantly on Twitter. I am like horribly addicted to it. Um, and I think uh, I'm on GitHub as designated nerd too. So if you're interested more in the code side of things, uh, and then yeah, I try to, you'll find me at many, many conferences. Um, and I'm always happy to answer questions about anything. Yeah, that's really awesome. You can also find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell. And you can find the show notes for this episode at swiftbysundell.com slash podcast slash 37. And once again, a big thanks to Ray Wendelik for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to check out their Black Friday sale before November the 26th. And, you know, pick up a copy of Ellen's book. Links will be in the show notes for all of that stuff. But most of all, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.